This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Melanie Abrams' first novel, Playing, is hot off the presses. And with a bit of luck, we'll have some here for you later today. Um, I had written down, and we're very lucky to have it here today, but we will be very soon. Um, The book has already been acquired in five different countries and is receiving a lot of critical acclaim, in part due to its steamy subject matter, but more so because of the strength of the writing. Abrams lures her reader with a complex protagonist that is just so interesting to read about, whether or not one wants to admit it. And it becomes a sort of game for the reader, too, to try to figure her out. The playing, then, becomes as much an activity for the reader as for the characters. Playing has been described as an audacious erotic debut novel that chills, thrills, shocks, and enthralls by Bharati Mukherjee, and also part fable, part romance, disturbing, tender, and sometimes terrifying, by Robert Hess. Abrams received her MFA at UNC Greensboro and taught at George Washington University in DC before relocating to California to teach here at Cal. It's been my pleasure to work with her in her role as co-director with her husband, Vikram Chandra, of this, this Story Hour reading series. As you can see, they're expecting their first child in the next month. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Oh, I'm so glad that there's directions mouth 10 inches from Mike. Um, All right, so thanks so much for coming. And um, just to give you, I'm I'm actually going to read from the middle of the book. So as a kind of prelude to that, um, the Grove Atlantic publicity people do a far better job of giving you the what the book is about than I will. So I'm just going to actually read that before I start the reading. So um, they say, when Josie, an anthropology grad student, is unexpectedly offered a job as the nanny for Tyler, a six-year-old with a penchant for trivia and an obsession with counting, she innocently agrees. Though Josie doesn't need the job, she can't help but accept the offer. There's something about Tyler's mom, her beauty, her confidence, her resemblance to Josie's mother that draws Josie in. She soon finds herself a part of their family, sharing an intimacy that soothes Josie's estrangement from her own parents, but also breeds betrayal when Josie falls for Mary's crush, Devesh. An Indian surgeon, 10 years her senior, Devesh pulls Josie into a dizzying world of sexual domination and submission, hence the cover. that speaks to her deeply hidden desires. It is a world of games that fast become serious, forcing Josie to confront her past. So um, the section I'm gonna read today uh, involves Josie, Tyler, who's a little boy, and Mary, who's his mom. Um, The only thing that you need to know, well one is that it's Halloween the next day, and two is that there's been kind of increasing tension between Josie and Mary. Um, because the children have become, started to become more attached to Josie than Mary, so. The next day, Josie picked Tyler up from school and took him to the grocery store to buy supplies for his Halloween costume. He wanted to be an astronaut, and they had designed a costume that required tinfoil, spray paint, and a football helmet. They walked through an aisle stocked with candy, the bags brightly colored and piled high above his head. 
It looks like a candy house, Tyler said. A candy spaceship. Last night she had dreamt that she was chasing Tyler, a game of some sort, and when she caught him, instead of him pulling away, they went tumbling to the ground in a heap of giggles. She felt no dread at touching him, no fear that she would want to hurt him, but when he rolled on top of her, he had smacked her across the face with the same wooden spoon Devesh had used on her. Tyler pulled a bag of pixie sticks off the shelf. What are these? She smiled. They're gross. They're just flavored sugar you pour into your mouth. You can get them. He put the bag onto Maddie's lap. Maddie's the baby. Oh, Ty, she'll want to eat the bag. She put the bag in the cart and handed the baby a pretzel. Okay, let's see what we need, she said. I know, he said. And then he did something strange. He walked over to her, kissed his palm, and then pressed his hand to hers. One, he said. Josie felt an unexpected surge of love and need, and she had to pull her, put her hand over her heart to still the swell. Tyler hated kisses, and yet he had figured out a way around the sloppy mouths in close proximity, figured out a way to make them soothingly numerical. Tyler, she said. He had turned back to the shelves, and although she wanted to grab him, to gather him up into her arms, she stayed where she was. Tyler, she said again, it's okay to count and to measure. She needed him to know this, needed him to feel her kiss him back. Don't let anyone ever tell you it's not. He stood where he was, staring at the giant boxes of cereal, when a woman pushing a shopping cart stopped to baby talk to Maddie. She was about Josie's age, and a baby, a boy, was sitting in her cart, gurgling to himself and waving a set of plastic keys. The woman smiled. How old is your baby, she asked. Fifteen months. She's so cute, she said. Daniel is sixteen months. Josie smiled at the boy and tried to get Maddie to wave. And your son? He's seven. You're lucky to have a boy and a girl. Usually Josie was quick to say that the kids weren't hers, but this time she realized she felt a deep longing for this. I have another boy. He's five, the woman said. Josie smiled and encircled Maddie's ankles with her thumb and forefinger. Is your son in first grade, the woman asked. Second. Tinfoil, Tyler said, and put the box in the cart. Your mommy says you're in second grade, the woman said. Do you like it? Josie's heart quickened and Tyler looked at his feet. Do you have a favorite subject, she asked. The moon is 239,000 miles from Earth, he said. Well, the woman said, you're a smart little boy. Tyler shifted his weight from foot to foot. We need paint. Yes, okay, Josie said. She smiled at the woman and wheeled the cart down the aisle. They found the silver spray paint, duct tape, a few more bags of candy, and a pack of metallic markers, and Josie unloaded the cart and paid the checker. On the way out, Tyler stopped in the parking lot. She thought you were my mommy, he said. Yes, she did. He nodded. It's okay, he said. I think it's okay. She didn't say anything, but she felt her heart expand in her chest, aching to hold tight to his. When they got home, Josie helped Tyler get into a spacesuit. It was really just a gray sweatsuit, but it didn't scratch at him, and it was the right color. She figured she could write NASA on the front with a black marker, duct tape some metallic stripes, and no one would question him. Last year I was a dinosaur, and this year I'm an astronaut, he said. You need your helmet, Josie said, and placed it on his head. It's hot. You can just hold it then, she said, and took it from his head. Put your candy in it. He held it in both hands and stared down at the empty insides. Say trick or treat. Trick or treat, he said, and she emptied a handful of pixie sticks into the helmet. Candy, he said. Yes, and when someone gives you candy, you have to say thank you. Let's practice. You go first. Trick or treat. 
Josie took two pixie sticks from the bag and dropped them in his helmet. Happy Halloween, she said. Are you going to come trick-or-treating with us, he asked. You forgot to say thank you. Are you going to come trick-or-treating with us, he repeated. No. Why? Because. Josie opened a pixie stick and poured the green dust into her hand. Because why? Just because. She licked the dust from her palm. But you came last year. Yes. But last year, everything had been different. Last year, they had gone first to the mall with Philip and Katie, and later that night, out with Mary. The night had been warm and windy, and Tyler dragged his dinosaur tail from house to house, collecting candy while Mary pushed the sleeping baby in the stroller. The streets were dotted with ballerinas and cowboys and skeletons, and the buzz of the night had made Josie brave. She rested her hand atop Mary's, and Mary leaned her head on Josie's shoulder, and Josie wondered if there was ever a more perfect night. When I was little, Mary had said, my mom would cover the trees with masses of spider webs. I wouldn't walk under them without someone holding my hand. Josie smiled. What else? We would have a pre-trick-or-treating party every year, and my mom made this punch she called witch's brew that I'm convinced had brandy in it. What else? Um, I was a cat for four years straight, and then a gypsy, and then a cheerleader. Josie tickled her cheek with Mary's hair. What about you, Mary asked. My dad had a haunted house built on our property each year. A real house? All these workmen would show up in the morning with a giant tent, and by the time I came home from school, it had turned into a real house with turrets and everything, Josie said. Wow. Every year there was some different theme. Once he had two dozen animated zombies programmed to raise their arm and howl when he flipped a switch. It was his own personal dawn of the dead. Where did he get all that stuff, Mary asked. Some prop shop in Hollywood. Mary looked at her. That must have cost a fortune. Josie was silent. She had told Mary that her father was an accountant, that she grew up on the outskirts of Santa Barbara in a town full of strip malls and fast food joints. He was really into Halloween, Josie said. That's some serious dough, Mary continued. Yeah, I don't know. She fiddled with the zipper on her sweatshirt. Mary knew Josie was being evasive. Josie once told her she could only lie with her back to someone. Otherwise, her palms sweated, she swallowed hard, and couldn't stay focused. I don't know, Josie said, and bent down to tie her shoe. She could sense Mary's hurt. My dad owned some property. We sometimes had a little money from that. Oh, Mary said and paused. What did your mom do? She was a housewife. Josie wondered how she had managed to avoid this conversation for over three months. And what does she do now? Same, she said. They had walked along in silence, feeling the wind whip their hair against their shoulders until Tyler was ready to go home. Then they put the kids to bed and Mary lit a fire and snuggled up with Josie. Josie thought she would like to be suspended in the moment forever, but it had, of course, been too tender to last. A year later, whatever was pure and sweet between them was slowly being coated with a thin film of muck. Mary could ask Josie to address her as Dr. Griffin in public, tell her not to sign Tyler's permission slips anymore insist on taking Maddie to her doctor's appointments, and Josie would still feel an invisible thread tied tightly around her heart and planted firmly in Mary's hand. Mary could tug ever so slightly, and instantly Josie was five again, unable to escape her mother's gripping hold. Now Tyler put the helmet on the bed. I want you to come trick-or-treating, he said. I know, she said, but I can't. Why? I have a lot of stuff to do. He looked at up, up at her and then rolled his eyes. She had never seen him do this before, and she tried not to smile. Where did you get that? What? 
She did it back to him and he giggled. She did it again and he laughed harder. You're an eye roller, she said. You are, he said, laughing. No you, no you. He was giggling wildly and Josie was rolling her whole head along with her eyes when Mary opened the front door. Mary wasn't supposed to be home until the evening and Josie scrambled to sit up straight. Tyler bounded to the door and stopped in front of Mary. Make Josie come trick-or-treating with us, he said. Mary ignored him and set the mail down on the hallway table. Mommy, please, Tyler tugged on her sleeve. Please, stop it, Tyler. Mary flipped through the mail and pulled out a letter. I want Josie to come. I'm going with you, Mary said. Now stop it. I want Josie. Another time, Tyler, Josie said. Josie, he yelled. Josie, Josie, Josie. Mary walked towards the closet, but Tyler had tangled himself in her legs, and Mary had to catch herself on the wall to keep from falling. Fine, she yelled. Let Josie take you. Yay, Tyler squealed. Ty, Josie started. No, Mary said. She paused for only a second, but Josie could see what was coming, could see Mary's eyes light up. Why don't you go? He obviously doesn't love me anymore. She was still standing in the hallway, her briefcase in one hand, her coat in the other. Isn't that true, Tyler, Mary asked. You don't love me anymore? Josie wanted to pull Tyler to her and cover his ears, and yet directly behind that came an even worse feeling. The air became denser, and Josie was abruptly outside herself, looking down on the room, Mary and her face to face, Tyler between. They were dolls being put roughly in place. Mary was being positioned, being made to take Tyler's chin in her hand. You think Josie's your mommy, she asked. I'll show you who your mommy is. Mary's doll arms were grabbing Tyler's shoulders, turning him towards Josie. Then Mary dropped her briefcase, and Josie came tumbling back. I asked you a question, Tyler, Mary continued. Josie steadied herself against the wall and managed a don't. Don't what? Don't make him tell the truth? Tyler cowered between them. Should I hand over custody now, Mary asked. You want to steal my children too? Josie felt the heat building in her hands, felt it seep through her body. From the other room, Madeline began to cry. Josie had laid her down for a nap in the playpen only 15 minutes before, but her cries built until Josie instinctively went into the family room and lifted her out. Maddie immediately quieted, but Josie felt the heat pour through her body. She had Mary's baby in her arms, and even if Tyler ran to his mother, Josie had the baby, the child Mary loved most. Mary had started it, and now she would get what she had asked for. Now Josie would wound Mary so deeply, she would carry it in her heart forever. She walked back to the hallway. Tyler had pressed himself against the wall, and Mary had done nothing more than drop her coat beside her briefcase. Give her to me, Mary said. Why, so you can ignore her? Josie turned abruptly towards the stairs. Come on, Ty. She took each stair forcefully, and Madeline started to whimper. Josie, Mary yelled. She doesn't even know you're her mother anymore, Josie said, and walked into Madeline's room. Mary followed, and Tyler stood in the doorway, alternately calling for Josie and his mother. She thinks you're just some woman who comes in to kiss her goodnight. Josie turned to set Maddie down on the changing table, but before she could, Mary snatched for the baby, clumsily grabbed a handful of pink jumper, and pulled. Maddie's head snapped back against Josie's shoulder and then forward onto Mary's chest, and Josie heard the baby's head thump heavily against Mary's breastbone. It was a dense, terrible sound. Mary grasped, gasped, and for a fraction of a moment, Josie thought that Mary had snapped the baby's neck, but then Maddie shrieked. Josie took a step back, and it took only Mary a second to put the baby over her other shoulder and regain her composure. 
You think you're some beacon of goodness, Mary said. You're not fooling anyone. I didn't steal your boyfriend, Mary. Mary laughed. Oh, you can have him. I don't need to be beaten by the men in my life. Josie froze. You don't know what you're talking about, Josie said. Oh, please, Mary said. I've seen what he does to you. I've seen your bruises. You've had them all down your thighs. What does he do, she laughed. Find a hairbrush and take you over his knee? Josie was stunned, and all she could do was shake her head. You might think not about not wearing a skirt when you've been a bad girl. No, Josie said. Mary set the baby down to be changed and pulled out a clean diaper. It's sick, you know that. It's sick what you do. Madeline's toys looked too big, the colors too bright, and Mary's words mixed with Madeline's cries until the noise sounded like needles in her ears. Did your parents spank you when you were little? Is that what happened? I bet they did. I bet they spanked you and you liked it. The world shrunk. Mary's words, Mary's words circled the room, growing bigger and bigger until they were colossal, sucking air and space. They were swallowing the room, and Josie felt unstable on her feet. She steadied herself against the crib and tried to breathe, but it was as if Devacia's hands were once again tightly over her mouth. Mary's pager beeped. Shit, I don't have time for this now. She fastened Maddie's jumper. I just came home to pick up a file, but I think it's time we discuss our current situation. Madeline had quieted down, and Mary grabbed a pacifier from her crib and stuck it in the baby's mouth. Take her. Mary pressed the baby into Josie's arms, and when she did, Josie felt the air forcibly thrust into her lungs. She heard Mary take each stair quickly, heard her drop her keys, bang her briefcase, shut the door, and then nothing. Tyler stopped crying. Maddie held the pacifier still in her mouth. Josie felt dizzy and was suddenly afraid she would drop the baby, but the idea of moving an inch of her body seemed worse. To take a step from this moment would set the world in action again, and she suddenly wished she could be put to sleep, her finger pricked, the world frozen for a hundred years. She could almost feel the sweet languor, feel her body funneled with sand, but then Tyler called her name and she looked up. He had stopped crying, but when she stared at him, he began to sob again, and she sank to the ground, put her head on her knees, and let the baby crawl from her arms. Tyler cried long, whimpery cries, and with each wail, Josie grew more and more exhausted. If Devesh were here, he would carry her home, wrap her in blankets, and call her his baby. And then he would beat her. She would beg him to do it, and he would. He would beat her marvelously, and with every strike, she would thank him. Gratitude would pour from her body like tears, buckets and buckets of tears, all for him. It was her gift. What did it matter how she offered it? It was her body to do with as she pleased. And if Mary were here now, she would tell her this. She would tell her this, and she would tell her that she wasn't sick, and that her parents didn't spake her, and that, in fact, it was a very natural urge to want to be beaten, an evolutionary adaptation that came down through the apes, who built societies on very explicit negotiations of dominance and submission, designed to maximize genetic reproduction. But these were Devesh's words, and the truth was, Mary didn't even need to peer into Josie's heart to see that what Josie was trying to call a gift was really no gift at all. It was a sickness, and Mary had seen it and wanted her gone. Tyler stood in the doorway, whimpering repetitively. What, she said. His hands were tight little balls, and she could see he only wanted to be quieted. All she would have to do was sit him down on the floor with his plastic animals and measuring tape, and he would be fine. If she could manage it, he would occupy himself aligning and measuring. But the thought of his voice, high and tinny, repeating animal after animal, statistic after statistic, made her clench her teeth to keep from screaming. 
What, she said. He didn't say anything, just stood there, crying half sobs. You can speak, can't you? The minute she said it, she felt her stomach lurch. She tried to think of her wrists and Devacia's fist, but Tyler continued to cry. Go to your room, she said. He didn't move, and she felt the familiar simmer in her chest. It bubbled, and she breathed deeply, trying to push it down with each inhalation. Go to your room, she yelled. He'd stood there for a moment, just enough time for Josie to push herself to stand, and then he ran to his room. Josie felt her head cloud, and she had to grip the crib again to keep upright. She tried to focus on her breath, tried to count each inhalation and exhalation, but she could feel the heat building. If she was so sick, why had Mary left her children alone with her? Obviously, Mary was the sick one. Obviously, Mary was the one in need of punishment. She would like to see Devesh beat Mary until she was covered in red palm prints. And if Josie couldn't have that, well, then she would have to dole out her own punishment. She thought of rulers and wooden spoons and belts. She thought there was a flat palm-sized hairbrush in Mary's bedroom, bathroom. But, oh God, she couldn't think these things. She would count. She would count the strands of carpet, the toys on the shelves, the flowers on Madeline's jumpers. She pushed herself against the wall and tried to imagine her ankles and wrists cuffed in place. Madeline had crawled to the other side of the room and was playing with a set of plastic blocks. There were two blue blocks, four red, two yellow, three green. The rest she knew were in Tyler's room. He had arranged them on the bed so that they formed a kind of cage, and inside sat a bunch of his animals. She had owned a set like this when she was little. She remembered because she had chewed the tails off all the animals and then collected them in a jar she hid beneath her mattress and shook like a snow globe before she went to bed. One night, her mother saw her pushing it back into its hiding place. When asked for an ex explanation, Josie had been dumbfounded. It just seemed like something she needed to do. Her mother chastised her and called her father in to see what his daughter did with her toys, but her father laughed it off, complimenting Josie on her ingenuity and asked if she wanted to apply for a patent. Josie had loved him for this, but it had also brought about the same feeling she had felt that day at the beach when her father had buried her in the sand the feeling that she had done something very wrong. It was reoccurring, something she felt whenever, whenever her father sided with her, and inevitably that sensation of total weakness would come over her, and she would feel helpless, wedged between her parents like a doorstop, and then unbearably angry. It was the anger that was hardest to control. It expanded inside her like a balloon, growing bigger and bigger until it popped, making her throw dolls and smash crayons and tear pages from books. Earlier in the day, Josie had sat on Tyler's bed and examined each animal, the elephant with the missing eye, the tiger that Tyler placed at the front of the pack. She was holding the giraffe when Madeline cried out, and Josie had slipped it into her pocket and went to get the baby. Now she put her hand inside her pocket and felt the giraffe. She fingered its slender neck, the ridge of plastic along its back that remained from the mold. It felt tiny against her fingertips, and she had a sudden urge to put it in her mouth to feel it solid against her tongue, to hold it tightly between her teeth. She was pulling it from her pocket when Tyler came back into the room and she shoved the giraffe guiltily back into her pocket. His face was still puffy from crying, but all his need had evaporated. He stormed in holding a large plastic truck. I told you to go to your room, she said. Where's my giraffe, he demanded. She was taken aback and for a moment she was terrified that he could read her thoughts. Go to your room, she said. I want my giraffe. 
He stood defiantly in the doorway, banging the truck softly against his knees, staring intensely at her hands. The thought of the giraffe firmly in her mouth had calmed her, but now she felt the simmer again, her bones swelling beneath her skin. He had been so good lately, obedient and almost sweet, and she thought that somehow the two of them had agreed to an unspoken pact. They would be sweet and obedient together. But then again, she had not lived up to her side of the bargain. She had dreamt things and thought things, and she wondered if he had somehow plugged into her so that now, here they were, connected by some kind of internal current. Tyler, she said, go to your room. She had wanted to sound forceful and commanding, but it came out as a plea, and he stood his ground. He stared through her pocket to the giraffe, cradled in her hand. I want my giraffe, I want my giraffe, I want my giraffe, he yelled. And in one swift move, he slammed the truck to the ground. It skipped across the floor, cab, then wheels, then trunk. And then it was striking her bare foot, banging along her toes and across her shin. The pain was sharp, a current which singed first her foot and then traveled fiercely along her leg until it reached her heart where it splintered, sending electricity through her veins. And then time seemed to stop. It waited for her to do something, and this time she did. The door in her head opened, and she took a decisive step inside. Fine, she said. She swept past him, down the hall, into Mary's bedroom, and into the bathroom. She was no longer near explosion. Her breathing wasn't labored. To her surprise, she felt a tremendous amount of relief, and she settled into the easiness of it all. She opened each drawer, and finally, under the sink, she found the hairbrush she was looking for. It was dark wood, palm-sized with a short, thick handle, and it was so old that Josie thought Mary must have had it since she was a little girl. She held it tightly in her hand and walked back down the hall to Tyler. We'll stop there. <laughs> it's not for the tender-hearted. <laughs> Thank you. I try and remember always to tell my students, there's this Yates quote that says, read what you like, write what you must, which I think is like the best advice that you can give to any writer. Um, but in this interview that Danica's talking about, there was, she asked me about um, why, you know, why did you choose to write about this? And I said, you know, I don't know exactly. You just feel compelled to write about a certain subject, which is another piece of advice I often give to, like, my students, which is, you know, write about what obsesses you, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. Um, you know, you can be, sometimes I think you have these obsessions that you don't know exactly where they come from. Um, they're just, and you follow them till their logical end. So, um, you know, the, I think when people ask this question, they're really asking about why are you choosing to write about sadomasochistic sex? <laughs> um, but I think that it's a much more complicated question for me, which is, for me, it was more about what, um, one of the things that I talked about in that interview and um, in general, is like, why did, how did this book, like, come about? And um, it kind of came about because I was listening to this radio show called This American Life, um, and there's this one episode where this man had set up a confession line. So he had set up, like, a tape recorder, I mean, an answering machine, and people had called in just and left confessions on this answering machine. It wasn't advertised. They weren't getting anything for it. Nobody called them back. It was just kind of a purging of emotion. And, you know, some of them were like, oh, I stole, you know, $10 from my mom when I was five, you know. And some of them were much more heavy and um, just eventful. And so one of the ones that I won't tell you what it was now because it's kind of the mystery of the book, um, this man confessed to doing something that was, you know, 
just absolutely changed his whole, not only his life, but his whole family dynamic. I mean, it was irreparable what had, what had happened. And so he confessed to that. So I just wondered what kind of person who has this horrific thing happen as a child, kind of what do they, who do they grow up into? And so that's kind of where the book stemmed um, and kind of the road that I followed to, to, with Josie to see where she went. And she kind of had her own stuff. So you should ask her about the sadomasochistic sex, not me. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.